Good morning, everybody. Welcome into the Mining Stock Daily long-form episode here on the podcast. Trevor Hall, your host for this wonderful episode we have with the one and only Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Uh, we had a great conversation, not only about his, it should be well-known, dollar milkshake theory. Uh, we do discuss this, but we we dive a little bit more in not only his expectations and theory behind a dollar move higher, but also what it means for gold moving higher and what would cause that. And it really is more of a you know a general conversation about Brent's background, like how he kind of had this epiphany in his uh, young career that kind of helped uh, spur this dollar milkshake theory. It was really one of the best episodes I think we've published here on the podcast in quite some time. And so I'm glad we could make it happen. Special thank you to Fireweed Metals. Western Copper and Gold and Arizona Sonoran Copper for your continued support of the podcast. We published a lot of corporate updates this week, so if you did miss any of them, you can go to miningstockdaily.com to catch those or also just visit them on your network you use to listen to the pod. Uh, Speaking of which, if you wouldn't mind, leave a review while you might, if you could. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to jump into this conversation uh, because it's about an hour long. It's a long conversation, obviously, but there's a lot in it to take away. It's going to challenge a lot of people who are calling for the end of the dollar and nothing but gold. Uh, and it's going to make you think really long and hard about really what could spur a sovereign debt crisis. All right, let's go jump to my conversation with Brent. Thanks a lot, everybody. Be well. Welcome back to the Mining Stock Daily long form episode here this week. Uh, one of the uh, great surprises and, and privileges of mine from my long trip to Vancouver happened at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, and that was uh, an introduction and the first time meeting Mr. Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Uh, Brent is no stranger to these types of uh, programs and financial markets. Talking about macro, he is the uh, the founder of the dollar milkshake theory. And we're going to talk about that more in depth here. But I got to be honest with you, Brent, you know, it was a privilege not only meeting you in person for the first time, thanks to our mutual friend, Grant Williams. uh, But it turns out that, if if I may lightheartedly say, you and I are both from Nebraska, which was the biggest right. surprise out of all this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> from, both from both from little towns in Nebraska. Little towns in Nebraska. And, I mean, I'm kind of you know curious if we just spent the entire hour just talking about relationships and family members from Nebraska, we'd probably find out we're second cousins of some sort. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no doubt. And we're we're probably both very familiar with the one fingered wave when you're driving down the the country <laughs> yeah. roads. Yeah, it, it's funny because like. <laughs> I, for people who don't know, if you didn't live in rural United States, when you're driving the when you're driving highways or even country roads, whatever, you know, it's usually pretty desolate. But when you're driving behind the steering wheel and a car passes you going the other direction, you just give them the one index finger wave. Yeah. And I remember yeah. growing up, I was like, my dad would always do that. And I was like, Dad, did you know that guy? He's like, Nope. Just saying no. hi. <laughs> yep. We're just friendly. Everybody's uh, a neighbor. Things you didn't do on Wall Street, New York, and in no. San Francisco. Well, you can't. Well, the thing is, you can't do it in New York because if you do it in New York, you're walking around like this all the time. You're, you know, <laughs> people think you're crazy. 
Or they get the wrong impression, think you're flipping you off. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, okay. So, anyways, a little bit of backstory here. I mean, that really what spurred this uh, this conversation here with Brent. But I asked him to come on the podcast. And uh, listen, Brent, we're going to get to this dollar milkshake theory. And I know you've discussed this a multitude of times, but never here on this podcast. So we're going to sure. look forward to that. But would love to just get a general sense of professional background uh you know growing up in small town central nebraska i gotta say you kind of were a turncoat because you moved out of nebraska and, <laughs> and became a jayhawk uh yeah, not a husker well, but uh, give us a sense of you know how you went from you know small town kid to you know living in this yeah. macro financial universe well it's 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 kind of interesting and you know a lot of uh, luck along the way um you know growing up in this small you, you you will probably laugh at this a little bit but so in my little town you know we, we had this big I, I actually lived in town so i was the city kid you know I, i'm the oh, urban yeah. guy because my town had a thousand people and all my friends lived out on farms right but you know i can remember being a little kid looking up in the sky and watching the airplanes fly over and i'd always think i wonder where those people are going i would really love to be on that airplane someday and then when I was living in San Francisco, if you fly from San Francisco to New York, you literally fly right over Nebraska. And if I sat on the right side of the airplane, I could look down and see my little town. <laughs> and so I would, so I would always think, is there a little kid down in that town and, you know, in Sutherland looking up at the plane that I'm now flying on? Um, so, you know, I, I actually liked growing up in my little town. Um, I liked Nebraska. Uh, you know, it wasn't one of these things where I got, I just have to get out. Um, but I always did want to, you know, kind of get out and go see the world and, you know, not just stay in my own, my own little town. And so, you know, when I, I would, I'll, I'll make this quick. I could make this very long, but I'll make this quick is, uh, when I was in bass, I was a bass, Nebraska basketball camp as like a freshman or a sophomore and Danny Nee was the coach Danny and he came Nee-y. over and he said, yeah. yeah. And he said, he said, he said, when you're six ten and a senior and I call you, are you going to come play for me? And I said, if you call me, I'll come play for you. He never called me, so I went to Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> Which had a better basketball program. <laughs> uh, the, anyway, the Danny Knee yeah. years were pretty good. I just saw an old photo of Danny Knee with Cookie Belcher and uh, Tyrone Liu oh, back yeah. together yeah. again. Yeah, there were there was a couple. They had a couple good years back in the early to mid nineties. So yeah. Anyway, so I went. I went to college in Kansas. I went to grad school in Arizona. And I'd always kind of wanted to live in New York. I don't know why. Um, when I was in college, I did an internship with an investment manager in Kansas City. And in my interview, they said, why do you want to this job? And I said, because I want to work on Wall Street. And they said, why do you want to work on Wall Street? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, do you know what a stock is? I said, no. <laughs> they said, do you know what a bond is? I said, no. <laughs> they said, well, why do you want to work on Wall Street? I said, I don't know. I just always have. And so, you know, it was just, it was really more just about wanting to go see the world and and uh, being kind of in a competitive environment, and you know, seeing what I could, what I what I could accomplish, and you know, luck would have it. Uh, you know, I moved to New York and eventually got a job on Wall. A lot of people told me no. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a I didn't have a father who was part of a country club in Greenwich, Connecticut, or had a bunch of hedge fund manager friends. But you know, through I guess just persistence, I finally got an opportunity, and you know, the rest is history, so to speak. Well, I I think there's a lot of strength in that, not knowing that you were never in a position where somebody could lift you up. You everything you accomplished in your life was organic from hard work and studying and being curious. 
Yeah, and I think, and it was, you know, my parents were always very encouraging and they were always, you know, you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. And they couldn't, in their wildest dreams, understand why that involved moving to New York because, you know, <laughs> if we went to North Platte, that was kind of a big city for them. Um, but, you know, it's just, uh, you know, I, I was never one to be kind of afraid of failure. You know, I'd rather kind of try something and fail than just never try. And so, you know, I failed a lot along the way, but I eventually, I eventually was successful. And, uh, you know, you never know though, tomorrow's another day. You always got to be prepared and, you know, no guarantees. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think your, your youth is very similar, obviously to mine, not just because we both grew up in a small town, but I mean, I also was so eager to leave the, the town I grew up in. I literally moved to Lincoln the day after I graduated high school. I mean, I was just, I was <laughs> out, you know. So I was like, I want to spend three months in the summer in Lincoln before I before I start yeah. college. But you know, I, in hindsight, you know, the older I get, the more I come to really respect that part of my youth growing up in a small town where you could, you could leave, I could leave my house at eight in the morning. And because everybody knew who I was and who my parents were, you know, if I, if I fucked up, somebody's going to tell my parents, but (laughs) you know, my mom was, my mom was a teacher at school. So she knew before I did. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but in now, you know, raising two kids in Denver, you, you just, you just can't do that. You just can't do it anymore. I mean, it's a sign of how things change and how raising and rearing children has changed. Um, But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I absolutely, uh, I respect my youth more now at an older age than I probably did growing up there. What was it about, you know, was there a time where through your career, it went from wanting to experience something larger in life than what you had grown up in Nebraska, but, and, you know, obviously working on wall street, but where you started kind of connecting the dots with markets, finance, you know, finance, and also the macro, like, was there a time yeah. where things really started clicking where it's like, okay, I'm starting yep. to understand this, but man, I've got a lot more questions that I need to figure out now. Yeah. So I, I had, and I, I've told this story before. So if people have heard this, I apologize for repeating it, but uh, for anybody who hasn't, uh, I think it's kind of, it was a very pivotal moment in my life. And I don't really know any other way to describe that. And I, I've mentioned this on, on different occasions and I spoke to Grant about it. Um, um, and we, when the three of us were together in Vancouver, I may, maybe even mentioned this, this, this mutual friend of, of ours that, that I'm friends with them and Grant is friends with them. They were potential clients and I met them in California. And we had this very, again, this meeting that very kind of changed my whole outlook on the world and the way I saw finance and the way I saw business and the way I saw the industry that I'm in. And without going into too much detail, it was a young couple who had sold their video game business that they had started in a dorm room. And, you know, they sold it for, you know, several, you know, I think it was like 30 or 40 million bucks. That's a lot, you know, that's a lot of money for these kids. And um, I met them and was trying to convince them that they should invest their money with, with me at Credit Suisse. And we really hit it off uh, on a personal level. And, you know, they were obviously very concerned about, uh, you know, how to, how to best protect what they had made. And so I, I invited them to come into the headquarters of Credit Suisse. And rather than just talk to me, they could talk to all the managing directors and the heads of the firm, basically. You know, I had the head of wealth management there, the head of equities, the chief investment officer. And in the back of my mind, 
you know, this was going to be a very easy meeting and it was going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. You know, this young couple was going to come in. I was going to wow them with our, you know, our conference room overlooking the San Francisco Bay and Alcatraz. And, you know, the, my colleague managing directors were going to do all this work. And I was just going to sit there and collect the check. Right. It was great. Uh, but we get in there and this young couple um, proceeded to ask a number of very simple but very deep questions that my managing directors could not answer. And when they did try to answer them, they were very kind of condescending and uh, dismissive. And I realized very quickly um, in that meeting that my managing directors were maybe not as smart as I initially thought that they were. Uh, because, and, and not only were they not as smart, but they weren't as nice and they weren't as uh, caring about the clients as what I thought that they should be. And that really kind of changed my whole outlook on everything. Um, I'll give you an example. This was, this was in 2007, right before the, 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 the housing crisis and, and the global financial crisis. One of the questions they asked was, what are derivatives? And my, you know, we all explained that these are options and, you know, it's, it, 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 they will pay off if a certain thing happens in the markets. And, and they said, well, are these risky? And they, and they said, well, they can be risky, but not necessarily that you can also use derivatives to reduce risk. And she said, well, we've heard, the wife said, well, we've heard about a lot about these. And we've heard that these banks have these, uh, these real estate derivatives, mortgage derivatives on their balance sheets. Do you guys hold it on, their, on, on your balance sheet? And the answer was, yeah, we do, but we hedge out the risk. And she said, well, what do you mean that you hedge out the risk? And they said, well, we do some trades with other firms so that, you know, even though they're on our balance sheet, the risk is mitigated because the risk actually now belongs to the other firm. And she said, well, what kind of firms do you do this with? Again, she just kept asking the next question, you know, nothing, nothing real dramatic. And they said, you know, firms like Goldman, Merrill, Morgan Stanley, and I'll never forget it. I mean, this, this was literally a pivotal moment in my career. I remember she sat back in her chair and she kind of went like this, kind of scratched her chin a little bit. And she said, huh, she said, that's interesting because we met with Morgan, Merrill and Goldman last week and they told us they do the same thing, but hedged out to you. <laughs> And I was like, I about fell off my chair. I mean, I was like, wow, you know, these, these, these people are smart and they've done their homework and my managing directors had no way to counter that. And so subsequent to that meeting, I'm still friends with these people to this day, by the way, um, subsequent to this meeting, I went back to my office and, oh, so they left. And then, you know, I went back and we kind of did a, a, a regroup after the meeting and, and they, the, the managing directors were very dismissive and laughing. And, and I, was, I said, what's so funny? They said, oh, these young kids, they made a bunch of money. Now they think they know everything. They should just give us the money and let us invest it and go start another company. And I just remember thinking that's not the right answer. You know, that, that's not the way this should go. And so I went back to my office and I, you know, I did a very basic back of the napkin analysis on the overall economy. You know, this is our tax revenues. This is our debt. This is the rate of growth. This is the demographics. You know, and I just remember, I remember writing all the numbers out with a pencil because I wanted to see how big they were because they had brought up a number of these issues up, up in the mm -hmm. meeting. And I didn't know the answers. Like, well, I need to know these answers. And I literally kind of had the light bulb moment above the head where I realized that the system itself was in trouble. Now, I wasn't smart enough to realize we were going to have a global financial crisis. And I wasn't smart enough to figure out I should short all the banks including the one I was working for. But that set me on a path of discovery that when 2008 came and hit, I was kind of ready for it and I understood why it was happening. And it made me stop trusting everything an expert said just because they were a quote unquote expert. 
And so let's, so that's 15 years ago now. And so I kind of feel like for the last 15 years through a lot of self-discovery and analysis and doing my own research and trusting my own instincts, listening to everybody, not dismissing everybody, you know, taking their views into account, but ultimately deciding for myself and figuring things out for myself. Um, that, that, that was kind of the pivotal moment. And so I feel like the last 15 years has really led us to where we are today. And that helped me develop the overall you know, dollar milkshake theory. Yeah. That was yeah. a long ramble, but I hope that hope no, that makes sense. There's a couple of like ideas in there I want to follow up on, you know, quickly. But you know, one of the things that you know, obviously we we have a lot of precious metal, you know, bugs or people who are interested in precious sure. metals that listen to this podcast, and obviously there's this underlying distrust not only for governments but for financial institutions and also in many parts of Wall Street. And you, yes. what you just described was this epiphany that, listen, all these banks are one and the same. They may have different, you know, physical structures or, yep. or different groups, but they all work hand in hand, obviously, yep. uh, with a with an account or two with the Federal Reserve. And we don't have to go back into that. But, you know, I think it is this epiphany, like what you can see the contagion happening. If one would fall, multiple would fall yep. with it. Right. and. And, and kudos to your friends who were able to ask these questions. And you're right. It was very simple questions with, yeah. I guess, to be on the receiving side of those questions in those institutions, you'd have a hard time answering. And I guess my follow-up yeah. question is, has, has any of this changed no, in 15 years? It, has not, it, 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 it hasn't. It hasn't. It's still the same. All the firms are still the same. Um, you know, people move around from one firm to the other. So it's not like, you know, they're all very smart people, all very capable. Uh, really, the only the only difference is really. I mean, there's a few little differences. Of, of course, there are. You know, a little regional bank in Toledo is not the same as Goldman Sachs, but but you know, it essentially it's all the same. And, and they have they have an interest in promoting each other. They want the whole industry to thrive, right? And so, um, and you know, a lot of a lot of it's smoke and mirrors. It just really is. A lot of it's marketing. A lot of it's salesmanship. And you know, uh, you know, you you have to. You cannot. And this is probably a big mistake I made. I, I made two big mistakes early on that I had to subsequently change. Um, one was that I tended to believe a superior if they told me something. I tended to believe it was true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was. I didn't question authority enough. Um, and the other thing is that I used to make a mistake of is um, is that just because I want something to happen doesn't mean it's actually going to happen, right? And, and when you invest, you shouldn't invest based on what you would like to see happen or what you think is the moral thing that should happen or that is the fair thing to happen. If, you're go- if your goal is to invest money and make money, if, if your goal is to make money, you, you, you can leave the fairness out of it. You can leave your wants and desires out of it. You should figure out what's actually going to happen, not what you prefer to see happen. Not how you would like the banks to act. Not, 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 not how you would like the Fed to, to, to manage monetary policy. But what are they actually going to do? And once you kind of make that switch, everything becomes a little bit more clear. Now, you may not like it, but, but the clarity does increase. All right. What are the federal, what are the central banks going to do? We're going to table that question because that's, that's basically the general theme here for the last yeah, half yeah, of yeah. the conversation. Yeah. All right. So let's, so there was this, tell me about the time 
you know, after this meeting where this yeah. epiphany of yours happened and fast forward, I, I, I guess I don't know exactly when you created this dollar milkshake theory. I think from what I saw, maybe yeah. two, 2020, 2021, that might no, be so way if, off. Yeah. Let, let me give you a little time frame from that meeting and, and I'll, because okay. it, it all, it all kind of runs together. So subsequent to that meeting, about a year after that meeting, about two years after that meeting, you know, after we got through the global financial crisis, there was a lot of other stuff that went on with Credit yeah. Suisse and myself during the financial crisis that I just didn't like. So I left Credit Suisse and I, I joined a buddy of mine who had his own independent firm. But during that time, you know, I, I, I went back and I read, I went back and read my college textbooks on finance and how the markets work and how the banking system works. And I, you know, went on the internet and I went into chat rooms and I, you know, I went to conferences and I, I, I basically had to reteach myself how the whole monetary system worked. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't just go and relearn the Keynesian way that I was taught in college. I started seeking out other ways. And that's, that kind of led me to the Austrian school of economics. And it led me to gold and it led me to hard assets. And it led me to understand that, you know, the way Wall Street works doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to work the way Wall Street works. And when I first came across the gold community in the Austrian School of Economics, I was so uh, enamored initially because I felt like this was a group of people who didn't just drink the Kool-Aid like I had been drinking. You know, they did see the world differently. And, you know, they, they, they knew the path that we were on was unsustainable. And, you know, th their solution in many ways was to get away from, you know, fractional reserve banking or fiat money and invest in gold and have hard assets. And, you know, you've got to take inflation to it. And so all of that stuff, that really spoke to me. And so I kind of went down that path. And I, I even started a gold fund in, uh, in uh, the early 2000 teens, like 2012 or 13. Um, and, and because I thought, because my, <clears throat> my own self-discovery, my own education, and listening to both sides led me to believe that that was an important part of an overall portfolio. Now, I never totally left traditional Wall Street because I think that part is important, too. But I was again, I was very enamored with the Austrian school. And to be honest, to, to this day, I, I probably still lean that way as opposed to the other way. But there's a but here is, is the longer that I you know, spent in that world now, where I was whereas I was initially enamored with it. I started to become, you know, skeptical of it after a while because I felt they were the flip side of the same coin. In other words, the Austrian economists or the, those of the libertarian view, however you want to, you know, describe that, was very was just as dogmatic about the Keynesians. It's just that they saw it from the other way, and, and they they could never they could never accept that the world wasn't the way they wanted it to be. And they didn't think central banks should exist. And they didn't think prices should be manipulated by the, by the governments. And they didn't think that governments should change the way inflation is calculated. And again, I'm not saying which one is right and which one is wrong. But my point is, is they were just as dogmatic about their view as Wall Street and the Keynesians were about their view. And I felt to like to exist in the real world, right? You, you could want it to be all Keynesian. You could want it to be all Austrian. You could want it to be a libertarian paradise where governments don't get involved, but that's just not reality, right? And so mm -hmm. since it's not reality, you, you cannot just invest with that view. And so in order for me to do a good job for my clients, I felt like I had to understand both sides, use both sides, 
and, and deploy assets, understanding that while I would like it to be this way, it's actually this way. And so that is what kind of led me then to the whole dollar milkshake theory. Uh, and, and this started in probably 2014 or 15. So in 2014, um, a good friend of mine um, did a big analysis and he said the dollar is going to get a lot stronger. And I said, you're crazy. You know, they're going to inflate this thing away. The dollar is going to go down. Gold's going to go to whatever, $10,000. But he was a very smart guy. And so I was, I was and, and, and he was a gold advocate. And so I was like, well, how is this going to work? And so, you know, sure enough, in the second half of 2014, the dollar just went on a big run. And, and, and if you remember, you know, 2013 to 2018, gold kind of languished, went sideways, went up and down, but it, you know, it fell a lot after 2013. And so when, when, when the dollar made that move, I was like, well, you know, he's not an idiot and the dollar did go higher and I was wrong. So maybe there's, maybe there's something I need to dig into. So that's when I kind of, you know, kept doing my self-discovery, kept looking at things. And that's when I realized that while the dollar and all fiat currencies certainly get debased over time and get inflated away, you know, history tells us that is the way governments get out of being over indebted. One of those currencies is going to outperform all the other currencies. You know, if you line up 10 basketball players and you're picking teams to play at, at lunch, even if all 10 players are horrible, one of them is going to be the best out of the 10, right? And so that's when I realized, holy cow, even though the dollar is extremely flawed, it has so many advantages that the rest of the world does not have. And in many ways, the system is rigged in favor of the dollar versus all the others that we are probably going to get into a scenario where the dollar doesn't just get stronger, but gets remarkably stronger. Um, and so that started to get, I, I, you know, I, again, this was a very long process. The first time I ever used the milkshake theory term was 2018, summer of 2018, mm, okay. or spring, spring, summer of 2018. And, it, and even then I didn't have it fully developed. Um, and again, it's, so it's a kind of an ongoing process. And so, but, but since 2018, I've been talking about the dangers of a rising dollar and that despite all the interventions, despite all the QE, despite all the bailouts, the rest of the world was going to have to do the same thing and that the dollar would ultimately end up going a lot higher. And so we kind of saw that in 2020 initially, and then we saw it again in 2022. Uh, it's pulled back now, but I still believe that before this is all said and done, you know, we are going to have a crisis. And when that crisis happens, I think we're going to see a, an environment where both the dollar and gold rise together versus all other currencies. Um, and I think that that will create a number of uh, problems, but it will create a number of opportunities as well. So anyway, that's kind of a long, again, I, I keep giving you these long rambling answers, but I hope that sets the stage a little bit. No, no, it, it does set the stage. And I think one of the things that I appreciate the most about the theory is the way you communicate it because the way you've developed this and the way you have done these types of interviews and shared this idea has been very simple for people to understand. You don't need to know financial jargon or be a member of Wall Street to really get it. Now, it is it definitely challenges a lot of people's thought process because we are. Yeah, I agree with you. I wrote down like, you know, uh, what you're talking about with uh, between the Austrian uh, Keynesian uh you know, theory here, there's so polarization in a world where 
we are politically polarized right now, and yeah. it almost seems, and if I may say, it seems like the world is okay with a little central, uh, some central ideas away from this yeah. polarization. You just basically describe the polarization financial theory right now, where I also think a lot of people would be okay with a little centrist ideas using both aspects of yeah. of those two ideas. So that was a that was a thought, but I really appreciate the way you communicate this theory because it's. As 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 challenging as it is for people to maybe you know appreciate and more or less accept the thought, it does absolutely make sense um, because it it's the way the system was built. Yeah, with the with the U.S. dollar, I you know I guess it all leads into some sort of sovereign debt crisis eventually. And are you starting to see this kind of play out in like a? slow rolling boulder that's maybe starting yeah. to creep down the hill. It is. And, you know, I'm the first to say that this has taken longer to play out than I thought it would. It's, and the interesting thing is, is when I first started talking about this, I said over the next three or four years, so that was 2018. So now we're kind of three or four years into it. And I remember at the time people saying, this is going to come to a head much sooner than three or four years. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, again, back in 2000, you know, this all started kind of, you could argue where it started. You could maybe start it back in 1972, right? But, um, but you know, it could have started in 2008 with the global financial crisis. Maybe it started in 2011 with the euro crisis. Maybe it started in 2020 with the COVID crisis. But the point is, is that these things take a lot longer to play out than you think that they're going to. Um, but I am somebody, I'm, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I believe that, you know, debt has consequences. Um, I think that eventually those consequences will come home to roost. And I don't think that you can just borrow forever without bad things happening. Now, that applies to the United States, but it's important to remember that it also applies to the rest of the world. It's not just the U.S. that's gone on this super debt binge, right? The rest of the world is in many ways in more trouble than the United States because they don't have all the advantages that we have. And so um, I do think that this is going to cascade into a sovereign debt crisis. I think it will spill over into the currency markets and capital markets. And I think when that happens, again, because of the design of the system, because in many ways it's, quote unquote, rigged in favor of the dollar, because the U.S. over the last hundred years has put things in place to ensure that they are the last man standing, or at least give them the best chance of being the last man standing, that when we get into this crisis, I think the dollar and gold will be seen as safe havens. And so I think the dollar will dramatically outperform the rest of the world's currencies. Now, whether it outperforms gold or not, I don't know. But I, I believe that you should have gold in your portfolio. I think it's a crucial piece of a portfolio. But I don't think you should only have gold in your portfolio. I'm not somebody who thinks you should sell everything you own, you know, buy a bunch of gold and gold miners, and everything's automatically going to be okay. I, I don't think that's the case. And it's because of the way the system is designed that I believe that. And let me let me give another kind of a quick analogy. And, and the, I, I think you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that when, when I talk about these things, I, tr- I try to use kind of simple terminology. And th- there's a reason I do that. Number one is because I want to be able to understand it. And I figure if you can't explain something simply, then you don't understand it either. But the second part is I, in my career, I have always worked with individuals. I've always had individuals as clients. I've always managed money for individuals. I've never managed money for other hedge funds or pension funds or endowments. So I've always sat across the table from an individual and, you know, it's their livelihood that I'm overseeing, right? So I've always had to communicate to another individual who is not a professional in the same industry as me. 
you know, if you go to an industry event, you can sit there and you can use all the jargon and the lingo because they all know it. But if you're sitting there with an executive who, you know, runs a real estate company and doesn't work on Wall Street and doesn't know all the lingo, you start talking about monetary policy and derivatives and, you know, this and that, they have no idea what you're talking about. So I've had to develop ways to explain very complex, complicated things in a simple way for individuals who are super smart, but just not versed in our lingo to understand. Um, and so, so, so that's, that's, that, that's where that comes from. Um, I want to pause right there because I do want to ask you about testing this theory. And it, it, do you feel like the theory is on the right track here as of last year? You know, in 2020, 2021, there was trillions of dollars created and there was this big, obviously we saw inflation, but there was this big fear of, um, you know, hyperinflation. But the dollar in, tw- in the fall of 2022 rose to one four, you know, Dixie rose to one fourteen yeah. plus. And right. so just watching the price action, you know, the foreign exchange move had yeah. to have been some sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say, you know, it's proven right, but at least it's on the right track. Well, so, 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 so there's two parts to this. Number one, like the whole, the milkshake theory is not just about the dollar going higher. I mean, that's the key component, right? That's, that's the right. key driver, but the milkshake theory is really a way of understanding or a framework for how to view how a sovereign debt crisis will play out. Um, And whether the dollar goes higher in response to the crisis or whether the dollar goes higher and causes the crisis, I don't really know. I just think the two go together. If you look over the last 25 years, every crisis that we've had over the last 25 years has coincided with the dollar going higher. And the the, the point I make to people is it's because the dollar underlies the whole system. If the dollar goes higher, it breaks the system. The system is, you know, fiat is designed to lose value over time, right? Mm -hmm. If it rises against assets and asset prices fall, that kind of destroys the whole system. And, And what I always tell people, if the dollar goes lower, that's the Fed winning. That's the system just prolonging the game. But it's when the dollar goes higher that you get a crisis. And that's why I think eventually the crisis will get away from them and the dollar will go higher than they think it will. Now they will react to that crisis and they will put things in place to pull the dollar back down. But again, the the, the central bank, you know, the Fed losing control is not the dollar going lower. The central bank lo- losing control is when the dollar goes higher and they can't keep it down. And so and to your point, I do think it was starting to play out last year. We're not in a sovereign debt crisis yet, but we're on the fringes of it. You know, last mm-hmm. year, the Bank of England, um, the PBOC, the Bank of Japan and the ECB and many others around the world had to intervene in their markets in order to stabilize them. And, you know, the a lot of times the arguments against the dollar is that we've borrowed too much and the entitlements can never be paid off and the Fed will have to come in and buy all the debt. Well, that happened last year with the Bank of England and the Bank of Japan. Right. So if you're worried about that one day happening to the dollar, that's fine. I get it. But it's already happening today in, in England and, and, and Japan. The PBOC, the, the, the bank in China, the central bank in China, they have had to ease aggressively in order to support a, a rapidly depreciating real estate market. Now, you don't have to like that, but that's, that's just a fact. They are. They, they have an easy monetary policy right now. Um, the, the European central bank had to buy, I think they bought over 100% of European sovereign debt issuance last year. 
So, and, and they had to do that to keep yields lower. And they were doing that at the same time they were raising short-term rates. So again, if you think that all these things are going to happen to the U.S., I agree with you. They will eventually happen to the U.S., but they're already happening in these other countries and to these other currencies. And again, if you line all these currencies up and you start choosing teams, one of them is going to outperform. And I think that's exactly what we saw last year. And that's exactly why the dollar went, uh, went much higher. And one other thing I'll say about this is I've kind of you know, made the comment that it's rigged. The system is rigged in favor of the dollar. Well, think about it this way. If when the U.S. and the West, however you want to, de, de, you, know, you know, denote them, when they won World War II, they set the new world order up, the post-World War II order up in a way that they had control of it, right? right. Well, if you founded a company and you named yourself the CEO, you would probably also name yourself the chairman of the board, right? And then if you put other people on the board with you, now you've got a team of people who are going to decide the rules via which the company is going to be run. Just like if you're you know, setting up the world, you're going to put together a team that's going to decide how the world is run. You are not going to load that board with a bunch of people who are, trying to go, who are going to try to throw you out of your position and take over. You're going to stack the board with people who are going to support you and you're going to put rules in place to support you. And that's exactly what the U.S. did. So the system that they put in place, it doesn't guarantee that they stay there. Anything can happen. You know, things change. Global hegemons fall. Global reserve currencies change over time. But the point that I make is the system was set up in a way to make it extremely difficult for that to happen. So these ideas that one day the world is just going to wake up and decide they don't want to use the dollar and the dollar is going to fall precipitously and there's nothing that the U.S. can do about it. It's kind of cool in theory and it's kind of this romantic version that the U.S. is going to get what's coming to it, but it's just not reality. Um, you know, the U.S. has a number of things that they can do. They are still the world superpower. And I would argue that they will use every tool in their toolbox to remain there. Now, it doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to win. It doesn't mean that great pain can't be inflicted upon them. But the idea that, you know, China or Russia or a couple countries are going to get together and just automatically overthrow the, the global order that the U.S. has put in place, and there's not going to be any chaos, I think is just completely wrong and naive. And so that's why I, I probably pounded the table, you know, on the dollar so hard just to get people to really think about it. Uh, because I think there's this notion out there that, you know, the dollar is nearing its end. This is inevitability. So get out of dollars, get out of the United States or before it's too late. And I, I fear, I fear that people who hear that and run out and do that are going to get hurt. And so it's okay to be prepared for it. And it's okay to, you know, have some of your portfolio allocated to that, but to go all in on that theory, I think is a recipe for disaster. That's very in depth on your ideas about the dollar, but I do want to turn to gold here and, sure. and kind of dive into, you, you said gold follows the dollar higher. That's, that's in the theory, but what would drive gold? Cause it sounds like if you have a rising dollar, it wouldn't necessarily be gold priced in us dollars, but perhaps gold price in other foreign currencies. Right. And that, I, I did catch your, your VRIC presentation where you did kind of highlight a few of those, uh, you know, gold price and other foreign currencies. And I mean, the move has been absolutely extraordinary in the last uh, yeah. year or so. But I mean, so for this theory to play out and on the 
besides the dollar for gold, is it is it right? Would it rise based on falling foreign currencies and sovereign debts you know, crisis in those currencies? Yeah. Is it basically is is it a, a fear and insurance buy moving those prices higher yeah. globally from the United like, States? I mean, how how does this work? I think it's a little bit of all of that, and so. You know, when I first started talking about this, um, I, I, controversial is not necessarily the right way to say it, but I, the reason I got pushback initially is one of the main themes of the whole dollar milkshake theory is that the dollar and gold rise together. And people would say that can't happen. The gold's going to go higher because the dollar is going to get crushed. Well, it is possible that the dollar gets crushed by inflation. Of course, fiat over time loses value. That, that's not anything really new. But the point I was trying to make is even if that happens, all of the other fiat currencies are going to get crushed even more. And so you will have dollar and gold rising together versus all other fiat. And if you look over, you know, this is what you're talking about, you know, my presentation at uh, VRIC was that, you know, over the last, let's just call it since three or four years, since 2018, I think the, the dollar, I think gold is up 35, 40% in dollar terms, right? Mm -hmm. But it's up 45% in Euro terms. It's up 55% in yen terms. It's up like 70% in um, Brazilian, or no, I think it's up 125% in Brazilian real terms. And it's up 500% in Turkish lira terms. So if you think about that, the dollar has outperformed all other currencies over the last four years. And gold has outperformed the dollar over the last four years. That means over the last four years, the dollar and gold have risen together versus everything else. And that was my point, is that you can hate the dollar, but, you know, and maybe it loses purchasing power. I understand that. But, you know, the idea that all these other countries are better off, it's just not the case. And so to your point, I think one of the reasons that, that gold will rise is, is I think fiat currencies will continue to be debased. And I think that that debasement was likely to pick up in the years ahead. Um, I think it will, so it, it will not only rise in value because of debasement, but I think more people will buy it as we get into crisis, right? It, it, it is mm -hmm. typically a safe haven asset. Um, those who are trying to de-dollarize will probably want to buy some of it so that they have an asset that isn't dollars or dollar denominated. Um, and, and, and then it's also just, it's, it's, it's really a confidence thing, right? As, as people lose faith in government, they'll look for the private market solution. And I think gold, you know, for you know, millennia has been a private market solution to government issued fiat currency. So I'm a huge believer in gold. Uh, I think my views on it have been a little skewed because, and, and the reason is, is, you know, I think anybody who spent more than five minutes in the gold world knows that the whole thesis for owning gold is built on the idea that the dollar is going to lose value. And so when I came out and started saying the dollar is going to rise, People just had kind of a fundamental aversion to that, or, or people who were in the gold world had a fundamental aversion to that. But I think once you kind of sit back and think about it and, and, and listen to kind of what I'm saying, and listen, I'm not, of course I can be wrong. I'm not trying to be arrogant and saying there's no way I can be wrong. But, mm -hmm. I, but I do think if you, if you just sit and think about it logically, um, it makes sense that the dollar and gold rise together versus all the other fiat currencies when you understand that the system is set up to favor the dollar. Um, and it doesn't mean it won't change, but I just don't think that it's possible that we go from a current monetary system to some kind of a new monetary system where in that interim period, it isn't chaotic, it isn't volatile, and that the dollar doesn't go higher. It doesn't mean that the dollar won't fall over time, but I think in that interim period, we'll see a period where dollar goes a lot higher 
And the last thing I'd say on that is that there is nothing more bullish for gold than a strong dollar, because a strong dollar will literally break the monetary system as it is currently designed. And if the monetary system as it's currently designed is broken, I think gold will put itself forward as a worthy successor. Now, whether it's actually adopted by countries and governments, I, I highly doubt that. But it doesn't mean gold can't go to 5000 or 7000 or whatever the number is. Um, I think the price will reflect that it is an option. Do you feel like that's potentially the reason why so many central banks bought gold again in 2022 in preparation for something like this to happen? I, I think it's a little bit of both. So, And what, what I mean by that is I think... Like, Whatever you think about central bankers, whether you think they're evil, misguided, foolish, all of that stuff, I'd probably agree with you. But, but I do not think that they are stupid. I think they're actually very smart people. I think they're misguided and I think they're off base, but I think they're very smart. And I think that they know that the system itself is in trouble. And I think that they know that they have to keep bailing it out. Eventually, it's going to get away from them. So I think that they own gold for a couple of reasons. One, they own it for insurance, just the re same reason I own it and, and other people right. own it. They own it as an insurance policy because they know if the whole system were to blow up, that gold would retain at least some value, whereas fiat currency probably would not. So I think that's part of it. Uh, the second thing is, I think to a certain extent, they hold it because if you hold on to something, you can control it. And what I think mm. about this, like the reason that, the reason Julian Assange is in jail is because they want to control him, right? They don't want him running around out there causing trouble. Well, it's kind of the same thing. If, if the government holds on to all the gold, then you can't get to it. And if you, because if you have it, you can use it against the government, right? Well, they, they don't want that. And now maybe that's a small part of it, but I think that's a big, I think, I think it's legitimate. You know, if, if they, if they are the main holder of an asset to a certain extent, they can control that asset. Um, and so, so I, th I, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I would expect also, though, that when governments get in trouble, that they will sell gold from time to time. You just saw this this month. Yeah. Russia sold. Russia sold a they bunch. They didn't sell a lot. They sold a small amount. But the point is, is they sold some. And I think governments will, will do that. If they get into trouble and they need hard currency to operate on the global stage, I think they will sell gold to do it. Now, maybe you think that that's it. But let me just say this really quickly. Now, I know people are saying, oh, they shouldn't do that. They should hold on to the gold. That's fine. Maybe they shouldn't, but they will. <laughs> I guess and that goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning. Whether you think something should happen or not is irrelevant. Figure out what's actually going to happen. Again, I think a lot of people said Russia will never sell their gold. Well, you know what? They just did. Or at least they sold some of it. So never say never. Yeah. And my follow-up question for that news headline, you know, Russia selling gold, was who bought it? Yeah, yeah right. My, yeah, my, my, I, I don't my know what they've said. Yeah, my first idea was like, well, the obvious answer, and maybe this is wrong, would be China because it seems like China is supporting Russia in so many ways. With I think the, it was probably either China or they sold it from the government to the citizens of Russia. Maybe this Russian oh, citizens bought it. Yeah, that, that's yeah. possible. Uh, I, I I don't want to speculate, but that was just kind of where yeah. my mind. Uh, I want to get to a couple current you know macro news items, but before we do there, I just want to follow up. I mean, obviously, we've talked in depth about. The dollar and gold rising together, but where does this leave the rest of the commodity complex? Not the not yeah. the monetary complex, but yep. the commodity, oil, ag, you know, metals, yep. all that stuff. So, this is a very very hard question. I'll tell you what I think is <laughs> going to happen, but but again, it, th this is the hardest question in general. 
let, let, let's, let's take a, if, if we take a five-year view, I think it gets easier. I think they okay. go higher. If we take a five to two year, five months to two year view, I think it gets a lot harder because I think it's, you know, the fact is, is that the, the U.S. is not currently printing, right? They're currently tightening monetary policy. Right. And the, the reason that they're tightening monetary policy is they want to get inflation down. So they are actively trying to bring commodity prices down, right? So to bet against them 100%, I think that's a little risky. I think we could see, you know, we could see copper come down. We could see gold come down. We could see, you know, some of these other industrial metals come down. I think it, you know, oil has come down. Natural gas has come down a tremendous amount. So, so to think, so to automatically think there is no way that governments can do things to get commodity prices down is I think wrong. Not only that, we could have a deflationary event because just a, because they're taking liquidity out of the system in which prices fall. Now, over time, that will be met with more money printing, QE, however you want to describe it, right? And so I mm-hmm. think that that is bullish over, you know, again, over that five-year period. I think that's very bullish for, for, for commodities. In the very short term, I think it's much riskier. I will say I am much more predisposed and much more bullish on the soft commodities, the agriculture, you know, corn, wheat, soybeans, Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of, you know, even fertilizers that I, I think it's very possible that we're going to end up in some kind of a food crisis and, and, and we will see food prices, you know, rise dramatically. So I'm much more bullish on that part of the commodity complex than I am on the kind of industrial uh, part of the commodity complex. I, I was having a, a very similar conversation yesterday on the, on, on the backdrop of copper, you know, and obviously there's a lot of people, very bullish copper long-term. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I, I listen this 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 moving copper on the back of China reopening I completely missed did not play my cards well at all. Yep. But short term medium term I just I it's hard for me to get extremely bullish because I understand right. the macro behind it the central banks are trying to kill demand to bring inflation down which does not look good at least in my mind for copper. However, we do have this growing supply deficit of the metal which is creating that bullish case. And I, and I right. absolutely get and respect, I absolutely respect that, but it's like, but you can kill that bullish case on the supply side by crushing demand. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll give a few examples to back up what you're saying here. Let, let, let's go back a year ago. So I think we're about 10 days away from the anniversary of when Russia invaded Ukraine. So last, the second half of February last year, Oil was trading at 130. Gold was trading at 2100. It wasn't too long after that that nat gas was up at like seven or eight bucks, right? But here mm-hmm. we are today. You know, gold's I don't know, 10, 15% lower than it was. Oil is 30% lower than it was. And nat gas is 70% lower than it was. Now think back to last spring and think just uh, think about how certain you were that energy prices were going higher and gold was going higher. And, and the Fed was going to have to flip and not do any more rate hikes, right? right? But here we are a year down the road and the exact opposite has happened. So the, the, the reason that I, I, I talk about this stuff a lot is that I feel like we are in a day and age where, you know, what you were saying at the very beginning, but we're very polarized, right? We're, we're black, we're white, we're left, we're you know, left, we're right, you know, um, and, and, and kind of related to that, I feel like people will hear an idea or they're in an inflation camp or a deflation camp, and they're kind of really kind of married to that tribe or, or mm-hmm. that view. 
And, and I think that's very dangerous. And, and I think people will get you know, married to that view and then they will go all in on that thesis. And I'm here to tell you, you do not need to go all in on any thesis. Not only do you not need to, you should not do it. Yeah. Especially like this is, I've been doing this for 25 years now. This is far and away the most uncertain time I can ever remember. More so than 2020, more, th- more so than 2008, more, th- more so than 2000 during the dot-com crisis. So I'm always surprised at the certainty that I hear when I talk to people. And maybe they're all into Bitcoin or all into gold or all into the inflation camp or all into deflation. And I'm just like, how can you be so certain about any of this? And so, um, you know, I, I think people should be diversified right now. I don't think you should be all in on anything. I think you should have some cash on the sidelines to take advantage of, you know, a great sale price if we get a hard sell off in, in an asset that you're interested in. Um, but I, I think it's a very ta- I think it's a very dangerous time to be certain. I want to ask you about the stress levels on systems with the, this tightening cycle we've had from the federal reserve. It's been a hard one to follow because obviously we saw 2022 was a harsh, harsh year for, for equities, but yet we get this idea we're seeing, we're, we're seeing the tech community lay off people, but yet we get this crazy blowout labor, uh, labor numbers yeah. last week, you know, obviously a little bit of, there's some seasonality in that coming yeah. off the holidays, but it, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, are you at all, I mean, I guess is the economy in the United States, is it resilient or is this kind of, is there kind of lipstick on a pig type of scenario? I, I, I think, I think there's a couple things going on. One is I think, there's short-term issues versus long-term structural issues, right? Um, as far as labor, you know, a lot of people are retiring. They're moving out of the workforce never to come back. And so it is making um, finding qualified you know, employees harder to find. So I think that's contributing to the, to the low unemployment numbers. Um, the other thing is that you know, the Fed started hiking rates 10 months ago now. A lot of times when you hike rates, it takes 9, 12, even 18 months for those rate hikes to actually show up in the economy just through the transmission mechanisms, right, as, as rates reset higher. So a lot of those rate hikes that we started on 10 years ago may not even be showing up in the economy yet. And I think they're, and so, you know, we're, you know, we're kind of getting towards the tail end of it. So I think that's part of it, uh, you know, is that even though markets have tightened the uh, monetary policy, it maybe has not filtered through the economy yet. The third thing, this gets a little confusing, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep it fairly simple is that the treasury in the last since, since October. So let's just say for the last three or four months, the treasury and the fed have to a certain extent been at odds. And what I mean by that is the fed has continued to hike rates and tighten monetary supply, but the pace at which they were doing it has slowed down. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, in the spring and summer of last year, they were doing 50 basis points, 50 basis points, 50 basis points. Now, the last two, they've done 25, 25. And people are ex- their expectations are saying, well, the pace is slowing, so it won't be long until they stop altogether. That so the, the pace of tightening is slowing at the same time that the Treasury, who has a lot of cash, is hitting the debt ceiling. So the reason that's important is the Treasury has a lot of cash from debt sales from last year. If they are spending money into the economy, that's putting money into the economy. Now, typically, they are also issuing bonds, selling debt at the same time. So they're putting bonds out into the market. And when they put bonds out in the market, they're taking cash back out 
in exchange for the bonds. Now that we're up against the debt ceiling, that, that sale of treasury debt is, is limited because we're up against the ceiling. So now you have a situation where the pace of rate hikes is slowing, the previous tightening isn't really filtered into the economy yet, and you have the treasury providing liquidity to the market while not simultaneously drawing any out. So I think that has given a little bit of a liquidity boost to the market. Mm. Um, and then finally, I think the last thing is that, you know, again, without going into too much detail, I would tell you to look up a guy named Mike Green and the rise of passive investing. And basically what it says is at the beginning, it, every time money hits a 401k account, you know, people contribute every month, the money hits in the account, there's no thinking going on of whether we should buy or whether we should sell. If, it, if money hits the account, they automatically buy. And it doesn't matter what the price level is, doesn't matter what the earnings you know, are, doesn't matter what the price to sales or the balance sheet looks like. It's just a function of passive flow. So every time money hits the account, it pushes markets higher. And at the beginning of the year, a lot of new money comes into the market at the beginning of the year. So I think all of that has contributed to give us a higher push into the first six weeks of the year here. I personally don't think it's going to last much longer. Now, Canada, of course it can. But I think we're getting to a point where the risk reward of being long here, um, there's much more downside than there is upside. Um, so I think in the short term, we're probably due uh, for a correction sometime in the in late first quarter, second quarter of this year. Um, but we'll have to wait and kind of see how that happens. If, you know, a lot of things trade on expectations. And so if, if the Fed continues to slow and the Treasury continues to push liquidity in the market, you know, maybe we go a little bit higher. What about the inflation cycle right now? Could we see a second yeah. wave of higher inflation just based on some of the things you described? And also, uh, yeah. the late—I mean, the labor market has just been like the cover yeah. story lately. So this is a little. It all depends on the timing here. So I kind of feel like it's possible that February is a little bit stronger than people are thinking it's going to be because because of these structural issues, because of the labor market. Mm -hmm. I think when we get into kind of the April, May, June timeframe, July timeframe, we're going to be at the peak of, you know, year over year um, numbers. And so I think you could see a dramatic fall in inflation because whereas the numbers a year ago were super high this year, if they're lower, you could see dramatic falls in the year over year number. And then where I think it gets interesting again is late into the fall, you know, kind of Q4 or even a year from now. When those year-over-year -year numbers, the drop from the year-over-year -year numbers are now behind us, and now we're kind of still facing these structural issues, and I'm, I'm not, and that I'm not really sure. But I, so this is a very long way of saying I could see inflation kind of stay stickier, higher in the very short term. You know, kind of Q2 to early Q3 this year, it drop a lot, and then as we get into Q4 or even a year now, it wouldn't surprise me to see it pick up a little bit again. Well, the last two weeks, it's there's been this paradox between, I guess, what the Federal Reserve wants and getting that inflation target down to 2% and obviously what the markets are expecting with a Fed, right. I guess, pause or even, I, I guess they don't, they stopped using the word pivot as much as they did a few months ago, but at least a yeah. pause and that would be a reason to, to be buying equities right now. But the, the I mean, sure. it is an interesting paradox to see who's going to win. Now, it seems like for, for the longest time, Wall Street their motto was don't fight the Fed. If they're going to push, the, if they're going to 
print money, push liquidity in the system than, you know, buy calls, buy equities. Yeah. But right now, like, I mean, it, it really seems like watch, watching Jerome Powell up there in the pressers, like this guy has zero confidence in what he's saying, period. Yeah, you know, watching it's, 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 you know, I, I think there's a lot going on here with the central bank. So I think the Fed raised rates aggressively last year because they want, I think, I truly believe that Fed or the, the, that Powell wants to get inflation down. Now, maybe he doesn't want it to get it to zero, but he does want it to get it down to where it's manageable. You know, the knock on effect of that, though, was the dollar getting a lot stronger. And it put, you know, going back to our sovereign debt crisis, it put Japan, Europe, England and, you know, other countries around the world in great peril last year. And we, we were on the verge of a sovereign debt crisis on September 30th. The week, the last week of September, you had the Bank of England, the ECB, and the Bank of Japan all intervening in their markets in order to keep them going, for lack of a better word. And so I think the fact that that's also when inflation was peaking and, and the fact that we were on the verge of a crisis, I think that kind of played into the Fed not stopping, but at least slowing the pace a little bit. And so perhaps, you know, while, while Powell is still determined to... Um, you know, to raise, I don't think he necessarily wants to cause a crisis. You know, the other thing I'd say, th this is part of where my thesis gets a little controversial too, is I have said that the U.S. will use the dollar as a weapon. And when, you know, they can put, you know, if, if the dollar gets really strong, it puts the rest of the world kind of in peril or on edge, and then they can extract, you know, whatever they want out of that. They can use that as leverage. And, you know, one thing I'd say is, you know, since the dollar got strong last year, I think, again, I think the primary concern was inflation, but the, the side benefits are, you know, industry has started to leave Europe and come back to the United States. You know, we have, since then, we've negotiated new military installments on Japanese islands, right? Um, the Russian economy, whereas last year was in a big surplus, is now forecasting a very big deficit. Um, and so there's all these things, you know, the, the strong dollar... It doesn't necessarily help the U.S. on an absolute basis, but relative to everybody else, it helps cement them at the top. And I, so I, so I think the fact that it, you know, it, the dollar got very strong last year. You know, some of these things, you know, kind of a quid pro quo. You help us out, and we'll help you out by letting the dollar come back down a little bit. I think there's some some of that going on as well. Yeah. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really glad that uh, you and I ran into each other. In yeah, person. yeah, I'm, I am too. <laughs> it was great meeting you. It was great to, to meet another Nebraskan. And um, like you said, we could probably sit around and talk uh, small town stories for a couple <laughs> yeah. hours. Um, yeah, you know what? But, let's uh, let, let's do it again, and you know, later this year or something. I'm happy to happy to come back. Yeah, we'd we'd love to have you come on and check the status because I think this is going to be a very interesting. I mean, every year in financial markets is interesting, but I think the next couple of months are going to be real telling about what's going to be happening yeah. going forward. I don't think that whatever happens, the next few years are not going to be boring. That, that I can virtually guarantee. There's not too many guarantees in this business, but that that's one I feel comfortable saying. But don't Do you ever yearn for just boring markets anymore? Sure, sure. I mean, to be honest, I actually like volatile markets better, but yeah, yeah it would be nice just to be able to check out for a month and go play golf or something. <laughs> Yeah, you know, wake up in the morning and be like, yeah. you know, not have to worry about what kind of shit hit the fan last night right. while you were sleeping. Right. Right. All right, uh, Brent, thanks so much for your time. You can go find Brent Johnson over at Santiago Capital on Twitter. And uh, it sounds like he'll be on again later this year. Cool. Brent, have yourself a Thank, great thanks. rest of your weekend. You too. Thanks for having me. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. 
Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.